Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome back to another edition of the podcast. We both hope wherever you are on the planet, you're doing okay, staying healthy, and making plans at least for getting back out on the water soon. Hopefully, in some small way, following the incredible America's Cup in New Zealand is helping to distract you all from this crazy time. As we've mentioned in the last couple of pods, both Tim and I are very fortunate to be here in New Zealand. We're both working as part of the broadcast team for this 36th America's Cup. I'm sure most of you already know, but it's COVID-free here. But despite this, there is no complacency. And keeping in touch with friends and family at home or just watching the news, everyone here is very grateful that this event can even happen. I have to say a massive thanks for all your feedback on the last pod. Remember, that was when we previewed the beginning of the Prada Cup. Lots of you loved the part when Kenny Reid started asking me questions. Don't get any ideas, though. That podcast edition is a long way off. We love hearing from you to hear what you think about the pods and our guests. So please get in touch, like, review and subscribe or just reach out in any way. It's really great to hear from you. So, what an incredible four weeks it's been here in Auckland. I've been commentating on the action along with Kenny Reid and Nathan Eiteridge, and it's genuinely felt impossible to predict what each day is going to bring. Remember, in that last pod, we were discussing whether Sir Ben Ainsley and his team would be able to turn around their fortunes after that disastrous performance in the pre-Christmas racing and how polished the Italian twin helmsman setup of Jimmy Spiddle and Francesco Bruni was proving to be. And also the pace of the American outfit, the only team to have beaten Team New Zealand. We asked whether anyone would be able to rival them if the wind was up. More than I can remember, the rate of development whilst at the Cup has been phenomenal. Of course, it's a new class. There's lots to learn, often from each other. But also, these three teams are full of technical brilliance. Couple that with the manpower to achieve the impossible and the drive to make it happen, it's an impressive and exciting combination. I promise you, it's going to be an epic battle to lift the oldest trophy in world sports. And the more you know about the boats and the people, the more exciting it will be. We talk in this pod to one of the real stars of this edition of the Cup. If you've been following the broadcasts, his clear, calm voice has been inescapable. You'll have definitely heard him. Many of you prefer hearing him even more than perhaps listening to Kenny, Nathan and I. He's delivered a real masterclass in onboard tactical comms. But before we get to know British tactician and Olympic gold medalist Giles Scott a little better, I wanted to say something about Terry Hutchinson and his band of brothers at American Magic. I can only begin to imagine how hard it is to raise that kind of money to create a serious America's Cup team, to generate the belief 
the trust, the momentum to get a modern day cup team up and running. It's a giant task. I'm sure at times it must have felt impossible. But Terry did that. He re-engaged the New York Yacht Club, the club with so much history in the cup, and he persuaded backers that this was worth doing. Instead of starting with a clean slate, he largely recruited sailors, technicians, and designers that he had successfully worked with before. He created a new team, but it was born from a culture based on trust. It was solid. And we all saw that when Patriot capsized. The sailing world watched in disbelief as she teetered on the edge of sinking. It was a dark day here, but the tenacity, the belief, the spirit required to get her race ready again was unthinkable. Terry is an exceptional leader of people. He asked his team to dig deep, and they did. I'm sure when their campaign is debriefed, they will highlight mistakes they made along the way. But it's a matter of fact. Very rarely does a team come to the America's Cup and excel on their first experience. This new team, they were up against some real experienced challengers, the most experienced, in fact, in Luna Rosa. But they showed grit, determination, tenacity and the whole sailing world has to hope that American magic will be back. They've made a lot of new fans here in Auckland. For me, looking to the future, there's a lot of promise in Terry's team. So let's hope it's the beginning of something promising. Okay, so Giles Scott. Within our sport, elite level sport, Giles is one of the absolute professionals. A man who goes about his profession with precision and resolute focus. He doesn't wear his heart on his sleeve, so as you'll hear, he's very matter of fact. He doesn't really like to chit chat and appears to get slightly uncomfortable when the focus turns to him. Possibly not the ideal candidate for a podcast, you might say. But what you're about to hear is a glimpse into what makes him so good at his job. He's methodical, analytical, calm under pressure. You begin to understand how he can make the right decisions when it matters most. In part two, we talk about his life in the cup, what it's like calling tactics for Sir Ben Ainsley. But in this part, we explore how this young man went from being Ben Ainsley's training partner to an absolute and complete domination of the Finn class consequently, the Rio Olympics. We've talked endlessly in the America's Cup commentary about the trust between Ben and Giles. The very essence of that trust comes from their shared past. An Olympic relationship that saw them go from training partners to bitter rivals. It's no accident Ben now has him on the back of Britannia. More than most, he knows what an exceptional talent Giles is. I hope you enjoy the time I spent with Giles Scott. Now I would have got an autograph from Ben in 97. I remember a chat I had with 
Percy and he said, uh, you're good, but you've got to toughen up. But Giles, thank you for joining us on the podcast. We're recording this in your apartment here in Auckland, just back yeah. from a, a full-on training day, racking up a few more miles uh, on Britannia. So a massive thank you. I can only begin to imagine how full-on the life of an America's Cup tactician is. There's a lot going on. So thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for coming. Um, before we get going, we're really keen to know, Giles, if you're a podcast listener. Did you listen to the, the Governor to Ben's edition here on our podcast? No, but you're asking that with a bit of a smile, so maybe I should have done I don't know. <laughs> it's not too late. <laughs> it's not too late. Anyway, in a way, I'm glad it might have put you off. Uh, so, <laughs> okay, so, great. So no worries there. Um, Giles, I mean, you're currently the name on everyone's lips here in Auckland. I mean, the team had an amazing round-robin stage, but the world can hear you so well on the amazing onboard comms out racing. I mean, it's fascinating listening to you. How are you dealing with all of that? How kind of weird does that feel? Uh, well, I suppose the hype around it is a little bit strange, if I'm honest, because we're it feels like we're just doing what we normally do and um you know i suppose one thing that's maybe become a bit more available with this cup edition is those onboard comps um so yeah i suppose the the audience as a whole has a has a bit more of an insight as to how the boats operate and you know they're amazing boats to to look at and i suppose they're equally fascinating to work out how the 11 of us on board handle that so yeah, but I mean, it's just a bit of a, I suppose it's a, a little bit strange. We're just trying to do what we normally do. And for the first time ever, we can all hear it. I mean, it's, it's absolutely fabulous. I mean, Giles, Ineos won the round robin in pretty impressive style. You've not lost a race yet. So you now have nearly three weeks of time where you're not in race mode. So more time for upgrades and development. I mean, how much of a win is it? I mean, what's going on in the Ineos shed? Well, I won't give you any detail with what's going on, but yeah, it's, you know, the, the, one, the one thing that I suppose everyone says about the cup is the one thing that you really battle is time. Um, and, you know, for us particularly, we've, you know, we were in reasonably dire straits not that long ago with some major issues, as everyone saw in the, in the racing before Christmas. So we've had to turn, turn a few a few things around um and yeah so you know getting through that round robin was well, a major boost to us because it does just give us that little bit more time to make a few am amendments in the shed focus on some new areas on the water and really gear up for the for the prada final i guess also it's been a it's been an exhausting few months for everyone it has yeah it's it, it really has but i think the you know the team as a as a whole really responded really quite well because it, it you know it was it could have been quite easy for things to to fall apart but i think you know all of us did a really good job in not you know reacting to the problem not overreacting um and just trying to knuckle down and deal with it and you know hopefully we've managed to build some momentum and now we need to try to keep that momentum going as far as we can. It's been amazing watching the racing, Giles, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But right now, you're a professional sailor. You're winning races. The boats are amazing. It's tactical. It's fast. 
you must wake up every morning with with a beaming smile on your face. Yeah, I mean, I I think yeah, I love I love what I do, um, but it's it becomes so all encompassing that a you know it's enough is never quite enough, you know. You win one race, you want to win another. You win your second, you want to win a third, and it's the kind of way it, it, it keeps it keeps rolling. Um, but yeah, you summed it up pretty well. The boats are amazing to sail. They're, they they offer a lot to a you know to, to a sailor. They're exhilarating. They're tactical, technical. Um, yeah, the classes come together really, really quite well. And I think all of us out there that are racing them are enjoying sailing them. We're obviously going to talk a lot more about the America's Cup a little later, but we want our listeners to get to know Giles Scott, the man behind the helmet first, before all of that. I mean, you grew up miles from the sea, but your dad was heavily involved in sport in the UK. Is, is that right? Yeah, he was. Um, he, uh, my dad worked for UK Sport. Um, he was involved in... Uh, bringing major events to the UK, and then he, I think, in the end, then he took a position as the as a le- as the lead in UK anti-doping for a while as well, before doing some stuff with the Commonwealth Games. So yeah, he he he'd worked in sport all his life, um, uh, not not competing, but I suppose yeah, major events and managing and whatnot. So sport was a big deal in your house. Yeah, sport was a big deal. It was always, but it was never really one particular sport. It was just sport. In general, you know, we were, we, the, my family, it's not like it was a football family or a rugby family. It was just, just, you know, sport in general. And I think that's kind of why the, the Olympics was a bit of a, was a big thing in our household because it, it kind of offered a bit of, a bit of everything as we were growing up. Um, yeah, but it, yeah, we, it, we were a sporting family. And so sailing, I mean, when did that become a thing? I mean, how did you get into it? I think, well, my, my parents were never, never sailors, um, but we, we moved to Canada when I was very, very young. And I think um, I didn't sail when I was in Canada because I was, you know, when I was up until I was about six. But my older brother did a, a little beginner's course on, on a lake down there. Um, and then we moved back and sailing was kind of one of the options of weekend activities. Uh, I think we were, you know, we were doing a bit of ice hockey because we'd come back from Canada and yeah, sailing was, sailing was kind of one of the sports that, that, that me and my brothers did. We were rugby, bit of ice hockey, bit of sailing at the weekends, which yeah, it was a little bit weird for a family that, that grew up in the, um, that we were in the Midlands. So yeah, we were, we were on gravel pits. Yeah, I mean, like a, a reservoir for yeah. anyone listening, you know, nowhere, miles away from the sea. What did you, what drew you to it? What do you like about it? Well, my, my first memory of sailing was, I think it's probably my first, my first uh, going in, in an oppie on my own. And it was at Graff and Water Sailing Club. We had, you know, we were on a course and me and my brothers thought it was amazing because we got, you know, free beans, chips and sausage for lunch. And then we, and then we got thrown out in these optimists uh, with a line tied to the dock, with a really nice old lady shouting instructions at it, and we thought it was the coolest thing ever. Bangers and mash. That's what, it. What's not to like? Yeah. 
Uh, Giles, I mean, who were your, your early inspirations? I mean, I think I read somewhere about an autograph from Ben at, at some stage. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's a, yeah, that's true. Cause it was, um, it would have been, I would have got an autograph from Ben at a Eric twin aim event in, God, it would have been 97 ish probably. Yeah. So just off the back of, um, his silver in, in Atlanta, I'd imagine I was a 10 year old. Uh, yeah. And you can still remember it. I can, I can, yeah, I can vaguely, I can vaguely remember it. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit strange to think about it now, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, from graph and water, I mean, something must have, you must have liked something about it because you kept going and eventually won the youth worlds in 2005 by yeah. now in the laser. How big a, a stepping stone is winning the youth worlds? It was big. Yeah, no, it was really big, big at the time. And it was, at, it kind of secured your place on the Olympic development program. Um, so I, I was successful at that youth worlds and then took the decision to go off to uni for three years. But because I'd had that success, I suppose I was always held in reasonable high regard with the powers that be at the RYA. So I'd always have the chance to try and, you know, once I had time after uni to fully jump back in and give it a go at, at, at jumping up the, uh, you know, the front, the funding tiers. So yeah, that was, that was quite a, that was quite, quite a biggie. But when I went to uni, I, I did, I, I made the, the choice of trying to keep university life and my sailing life pretty separate. So I was very much a, normal student for all the probably all the wrong wrong reasons i mean i can imagine at the time quite a big decision to go to university because you know in the uk then hmm. you could have just you know joined the the development program you could have you know from quite an early age you could have been a professional athlete yeah i i yeah i suppose it i could i could have but it was never really in it was never really a question as to what I was going to do. I was always going to uni. I think certainly my parents were very keen that I went to uni because it's, you know, you, you, you never know how far you're going to go through a sport. You never know. You don't really know how, how good you are, how, what your progression is going to be like. All, you, all, all I knew at the time was that, yeah, you know, maybe got a bit lucky there and won a youth world championships, go to uni and then see how it goes after that. By then, of course, you were a towering six foot six and you joined the formidable British Finn squad under the wing of David Howlett. I mean, not only is he Ben's coach, but he's also a man who's been a massive influence in the UK medal hall. I mean, well, for decades. Mm. What's your memories of that time? Yeah, I, I, so I had to jump out of the laser pretty at a pretty young age because of my, my size. And uh, I got sent to... I got sent to... Sid's house to meet Sid for the first time. David Howlett. David Howlett. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Uh, and I, I immediately took a shining to him, and he, uh, you know, he's full of all, full of all kinds of advice, and you know, as you say, a legend of the sport. So yeah, just sat, listened, and I suppose did what did what he said really. Um, yeah, and and he was he was really key in 
setting me up with a real good foundation in the in the fin because you know all the work that he'd done with the likes of Percy and of course Ben um you know the British fin program had such this had such an amazing base to kind of kickstart new good guys into it um and I suppose I I fell into that I fell into that bracket and he he you know he set me up and got me rolling from the outside, I mean, it's quite punchy, isn't it, to join the same class that Ben Ainsley was competing in. I mean, was that ever in your mind that to get where you wanted to be, you'd have to be better than Ben? Uh, no, it, it, it was never really in my mind. I, I moved into the Finn, in, honestly, because that's, that's where I had to, had to go. That's where I had to go. I didn't really have any other options. I was a single-handed sailor. It's too big for a, too big for a laser, and the, the Finn was you know, where I was headed and where I kind of had to go. It was, it was never a, never a, a question mark. And, um, at the time I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about beating, beating Ben. I was, I was focused on trying to get myself to being as good as I could be. And I didn't really know how good that could, that could be with time. Um, so yeah, no. At the time when I moved to the Finn, it was that was miles away from my thoughts. Yeah. You got your first glimpse of Olympic life in two thousand and eight as part of Ben's preparation team for the Beijing Games. Yeah. You know what was that like? How much of it was a real learning experience, or were you just wishing it was you in the Olympic spot? No, at two thousand and eight, I wasn't wishing it was me at all. I was so stoked that you know. Um, that Ben wanted to bring a training group out and prepare. Uh, and I was part of that group. There was three or four of us, four of us, Ed Gregg, Andy Mills, Mark Andrews. Yeah, that, that was the, that was the four of us who, who went out and did all the, did all the prep in the training camp, two training camps. I think it was two or three training camps before 2008. But yeah, I was, I, I was a, I was trying to be a sponge through that, really, just kind of see what it was all about. Um, of course, see how uh, how Ben approached it, um, how the team as a whole approached the whole Olympic thing, because there's so much. There's, there's always so much chat around the Olympics and how how different it is, and games experience, and and all of all of that kind of carry on. Um, so yeah, in. For, for, for 2008 I was I really was just happy to happy to be there and to be and to be learning from um you know from 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 Ben and, and everyone else there what did you see what did what did you learn I mean particularly from Ben and the way he prepared for games um well I, th I suppose I learned pretty quickly that's that the, the I mean the simple things like the work ethic was always there the determination, the drive, um, the I suppose the ability to do more hours than competitors, um, all things like that, and and as, as well I suppose a bit of a, a you know an underlying mindset as well as to um, I suppose what it takes to takes to win really. Yeah. What do you mean an underlying mindset? Well, at, at the time, I was I was young. I was still at university, and I was very 
kind of happy go like happy go lucky and when i say i was just happy to be there that's the honest truth i was just happy to be there I'm like oh this is cool i'm you know i'm a training partner for 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 ben in his build up to the to the 2008 uh, eight olympics um and you know it was spending a bit of time with the likes of ben and 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 also with people like ian percy and andrew simpson uh they they you know they they kind of were taking, I suppose, a little bit, seeing me and taking me under their wing a little bit, offering a little bit of bit of advice. Um, and I remember, I remember a chat I had with with Percy, and he said uh, something along the line. Well, I won't say exactly what he said, but it was along the lines of, "You're good, but you've got to toughen up," sort of thing. Um, which, yeah, I'll. Uh, I'll certainly remember. Yeah, you've not forgotten that. Yeah, it wasn't in that language. It was a bit stronger than that, but. <laughs> Obviously you need to be the best in the world to win Olympic medal, but first you need to get there. Really, I, I knew who I was up against. I understood that. I was a boring winner. I'd never celebrate. The next games was a big one, wasn't it? I mean, a once in a lifetime for a lucky few athletes at home games. And the British selection process was well, I mean, it was a bit of an epic. You were Finn World Champion in the year of selection, 2011. Ben was struggling with a back injury. You were well and truly improving with every passing event. How did that all work out and how big a career moment was it? Um, yeah, it was, it, was a big, it was a big moment. It's obviously home, home games. Um, but the, I suppose looking back on it now, there's, there's a few simple facts and yeah, as you say, I was—I suppose—I was getting—I was getting better and still coming up through the ranks and beginning to, you know, look as if I was capable of winning, you know, winning an Olympic medal. But the the, the British Olympic selection process is very well defined, and if you look back, having the full knowledge of that Olympic selection process, which clearly Ben has, I have, all of us who were looking for a spot had, is that you had to win certain events to get selected to go and the truth is, the truth is and the, the fact is is that those events Ben won and I was second so it's kind of you know it was always it was always a it was always kind of a a done thing I was yeah I was I was good but I, I wasn't I wasn't good enough and Ben earned his spot rightly so and the rest was the rest was history but um yeah i, I certainly learned an awful lot from that that campaign again from from ben and uh racing closer to his to his to his level for that one spot um and i think having been through that that and you know not not qualifying in in 2012 certainly catapulted me through into not 2013 but from 2014 onwards um so yeah it's it's one of those it's one of those ones where, yes, I was good and I was one of the best guys in the fleet, but I didn't win, I didn't win the selection. So it's, it's, you know, sailing's harsh like that. Um, what was the lesson you learned? I mean, you were world champion that year. You could deliver when it mattered. Yeah, I was world champion, but, um, you know, that was, a, that was an interesting world in its interesting worlds in itself um and there was a period through throughout the build-up to um to 2012 where 
you know, you know, it would Ben, ben would win events and I would finish second, and we we both knew that you had to. It was all about you know. Obviously, you need to be the best in the world to win Olympic medal, but first you need to get there. And it just so happened that to get there, that the person who's going to get there had to be dominant on the world stages, world stage as well. Um, so yeah, it was it was there was a lot of. There was, I suppose there was a real amount of hype around it, um, but yeah, it's the the way I look back on it now is that it's just quite a simple thing where. The process was defined. I wasn't quite good enough where, where I needed to be and didn't get the nod to go. It's kind of as simple as that. Can you remember, Giles, what it felt like, you know, sailing in from the last race of those trials in Weymouth, knowing that it was over? Well, it wasn't quite over. That, I think you're talking about sell for gold. So Ben won sell for gold. And I was second there. And then for, for, for Ben to be selected, he then had to go to the test event and win there, which he, which he did. Um, but it was, I, it wasn't, I was never, it was never like I was completely gutted because really I, I knew who I was up against. I understood that. <laughs> um, I still, of course, wanted, wanted to win, but I knew it, it wasn't, I wasn't going to, you know, it's not like I was going to have a breakdown after being being beaten by by Ben, you know. It was it was kind of uh, it, it wasn't normal. It was like I finished second in an event that just was kind of a bit of a bigger a bigger deal. Um, I think it was like the the harder lessons I learned weren't weren't really until after the games had been the year later and I'd processed everything and then really started thinking about what I had to do next time round to make sure I didn't land myself in a similar situation. Um, I mean, actually, I don't, I don't remember seeing you in Weymouth, Giles, during the Games. I mean, how difficult was that? I mean, how, you know, did you watch it? How did that work for you? Uh, yeah, I watched it. I, um, it was a bit of a party vibe, and I, I can't, can't exactly say I was in, a, in the mood to party, but I wanted to see it all happen and unfold um, you were there i was no i was there yeah yeah i was there um i i was on the yeah i was on the nose uh but i tried to not make a thing of it i remember a few times people would ask me for interviews on there and i was like nah <laughs> no, i'm okay um but yeah it was it was fine i'm glad i'm glad i saw it all and i was and i was there for it but it was the the weird thing was just watching the, I suppose the, the fin the fin medal race, and it it wasn't so much that I wasn't there, but it was more that I was watching the, I was just seeing the, uh, uh, you know, all the whoever was in the medal race, the the French guys, the Dane, the Croatian, and it's all the guys that I'd. It wasn't it wasn't just Ben out there. It was all the guys that I'd that I'd be racing around against. Um, so yeah, that was kind of. You know, it was, I suppose, yeah, it was a weird thing to, weird situation to be in. But, yeah, glad I, glad, glad, glad I saw it. It kind of made me make sure that I didn't want to be in it, as I say, in that situation again. From the autumn of 2013 through to Rio, I think you won every Finn event, bar one. 
I yeah. mean, an extraordinary domination of the class. We just sort of, we've just spoke about it really, but just try and, and clarify for us, you know, how motivating 2012 had been. I mean, how much was that the catalyst for that extraordinary run in the Finn class? Uh, yeah, it, it, it absolutely was. Um, <clears throat> I was getting, you know, I was getting good bef- in the build-up to those those trials, and I suppose I was really only getting good uh, probably from, say, 2010 onwards. And, um, yeah, following London, I, you know, I, I even, I got quite geeky on it. I wrote a big you know, document on what I'd learned and what I thought I needed to take forwards. And yeah, and that kind of formed the basis and the, and the building blocks of the, uh, of the campaign we set up for Rio. And I did that with, with, um, with Matt Howard, my, my coach for Rio and again for, for Tokyo later this year. It sounds like, you know, you're really quite analytical about the Rio campaign. You know, describe... Giles Scott, the competitor at that time? Um, obsessed, probably. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, I was obsessed with winning Finn races. <laughs> that's kind of, that's about it. Um, I didn't really care for much else other than the, other than the Finn circuit and trying to, win races and get and get and get better and you know win selection to Rio and go to the Olympic Games that was kind of that's kind of it did you feel like you had to win every race yeah and the more I won the more I felt I had to win because you you're always because people because uh, I lost the one event but then of course it, the more you win people think you're then a cert you're a cert for for winning and it's like well actually no like I only just won the last event yes I won it but it was only just like kind of felt like you you, you always feel like you're never that far away from a bit of a mis- from a mistake um and yeah the you know the longer that streak went on the more pressure I put on myself but actually the more pressure I put on myself I found the harder that it made me work and Fortunately, it spiraled the right way um, because I imagine some people may have that kind of pressure come on that whether it's someone else putting it on you or or pressure that you put on yourself uh, kind of making you a little bit a little bit worse and beginning to choke a bit. But fortunately, through that period, I you know I didn't didn't experience that apart from at that 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 one event where uh, in Palmer, yeah. I had a bit of a paddy because in the penultimate race, I uh, my I had this new rudder and it was super stiff, and the um, the, the gudgeon snapped off, <clears throat> and it's a, it was uh, it was a concept rudder. It's quite expensive, and I just remember launching it off the back of the boat, and then kind of seeing it seeing it go in the air like oh, it's not going to float. <laughs> And it, you know, it started to sing. Fortunately, Matt ripped it in the rib and you know rescued it as it was on its way down. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That's a good moment, uh, Giles. With all that success in the class, it, it's remarkable, really, to think that Rio was your first Olympics. 
But you must have felt confident. I mean, with so many race wins already in your career. Yeah, I had com- I had confidence, and I knew that I was capable of winning. But sailing's sailing's a complex sport, and <clears throat> it involves a little bit of luck here and there. You can f- fall fat, you know, you can fall on the wrong side of that luck. Um, and I knew that Rio had the potential to be a really quite risky venue. Um, so yeah, I was confident, but uh, I, I I knew that it wasn't going to be easy. Britain had retained the Finn gold medal since 2000 when Ian Percy started that role. I mean, the culture also in the British sailing team is about delivery. The press called you a shoe-in for gold. And I remember interviewing you in Rio. I mean, not the best interview, I have to say, Giles. Giles Scott giving away nothing. I mean, could you feel at that time sort of the weight of expectation? Well, my interview wasn't good. Yes. (laughs) I mean, it probably wasn't because I was quite strict and controlled with what I said because it was always the exact same. It was always the same question. You've had this winning streak. People say you're a shoe in to win. Sounds like a lot of pressure. So, yeah, I kind of just created this stock answer that I just, re- that I just put on repeat. So it was my fault. The question is... No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But, but for sure, people were interested in, um, in that, I suppose, that, that, side of, that side of it. And I just did my best to to normalise it and make it the same as any other event and, you know, yeah, yeah, probably, and just gave you a boring answer. (laughs) Well, very calmly and from the outside anyway, with little emotion, you dominated the week. We were there shooting on the water for the BBC and when it was likely you'd win with a race to spare, I mean, you were miles out to sea, out of RF range uh, for all the cameras. But we dashed out in our tiny boat in time to see you on the final lap. And I'll never forget it. You'd done enough. And when you crossed the line, you stood tall in your boat, all six foot six of you, and let out the biggest roar. I mean, it looked like a massive outpouring of emotion. What were you feeling, Giles, at that moment? Um, relief mostly. Uh, I always got a lot of grief, um, in the build up to, to Rio because I was a, I was a boring winner. I'd never celebrate, you know, I'd never give them the, the amazing photo or, you know, I'd always just give it a, you know, thumbs up. But the reason I did that was because it was, it wasn't the one that, that I wanted. Um, so yeah, the, the, the outroar of the of winning the winning in Rio was kind of yeah it was it was a big release of all that tension emotion I kind of had done what I'd aimed at and yeah it was just a bit it was a, it was a good moment. People often think, don't they, that an Olympic campaign is is just a four year commitment, but the reality is always a much longer sacrifice. I mean, it had been in reality a ten year journey to stand on top of the podium in Rio. How did that feel? Giles Scott, finally the Olympic gold medalist. Um, it felt good. Yeah, it felt good. Um, it, yeah, I, it's not, I didn't, it's not like I went out on a, 
like and partied for weeks on end. It was it was just it was just satisfying. That's how I'd describe it. Like perfectly satisfying. Just like a I suppose a bit of a weight off my shoulders and like yes okay I, I was capable of doing that and I've uh, and I've and I've done it now. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was. It was weird to think that I'd managed to get it done because you, you know, you grow up as a kid and you, you idolise these, you know, you idolise Olympians and and then suddenly when you find yourself there, it's a, it's a bit of a weird, weird thing to. Weird thing to go through, but you know, amazing and you know, hopefully Touchwood, I might have a shout at doing it again in a, in not so long, but yeah, we'll see. Well, exactly. It's not over yet, is it, Giles? I mean, Tokyo still all feels a bit up in the air. I mean, how has how has that postponement affected your build up to your title defence? Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it it's been less than ideal. Uh, it's been less than ideal for everyone, clearly. But um, <clears throat> we we worked pretty hard to make sure that the Olympic program in the and the AC, or what you know, what was the Olympic program, and what is was the AC program, kind of knitted in together really nicely. Um, and then, obviously, Corona came along, and suddenly that all gets torn to shreds, and you're looking down the the barrel of the you know the Olympic Games, then suddenly being three months after the the closing of the the Americas Cup. So it's you know if you if you'd have said here's the program four years ago and said, right, you've got an America's Cup that you're going to be gearing up for. And then three months later, you're into an Olympic Games. You know, do you think that's possible? You'd, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd question yourself as to whether it's, it's all doable. Um, but yeah, that's the situation. That's the situation that we've landed in and just got to try and deal with it now. I mean, as we're recording this, it's it's still on. I mean, what's how do you deal with it? What are you thinking those three months look like? Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? You read the you know one day the newspapers are writing how it's definitely going to go ahead. The next day they're saying it's not. And I think the, the mindset that I'm sure almost every athlete has is that it is going ahead until you're told it's not. Because if you you can't assume that it's going to be cancelled, that's just that's just stupid. Um, so yeah, we, I think I'm, you know my my mind's very much set on the fact that the Olympics is is coming around. It's going to be three months after after we're uh, we're we're done here with the with the cup, and you know I'm going to roll out of the cup and straight into fin training and doing whatever I can to put myself in in good shape and good order for for Tokyo. That's it, really. There we have it, podcast listeners. Thanks for joining us and a massive thanks also to Giles. I hope that glimpse into Giles' Olympic life helps put some of what you're hearing here from the Cup into context. Join us for part two when we talk to Giles about his career in the America's Cup as we find out what it's like making winning race decisions for the most successful Olympic sailor of all time. A massive thanks, as always, to Tim at Vertigo Films for somehow finding the time to lovingly produce this pod. 
Tim's also working here producing some of the great feature content for the America's Cup coverage. So right now, he's a busy man. It's really appreciated, Tim. Please, as ever, let me know what you think about the podcast or if you've any questions about Cup World, get in touch. I'm at Shirley Sale on Instagram and Twitter, just me on Facebook. And please do remember to like, review and subscribe on whatever platform you're joining us on. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, everyone. Castle One standing by. Out. Oh.